Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. This is TRSI. I don't know why I did that out of order. I forgot what I was introducing as I started speaking. Michael, how have you been? Not too bad, Gary. I've got a dose of TB I'm finding hard to shake off, but other than that, not too bad. So there's nothing I can remember today that we should commemorate, but there is something that listeners should look forward to. There is a power plant, which was originally meant to only come online in... uh, Q1 of next year. That has uh, that has been rescheduled. It's now meant to come online on the 15th, which is next Monday. All of the projections that are good have that thing coming online at that date. The people involved tell me absolutely it will be online for the 15th, but we get to see if it is. So for the Wednesday show, uh, we will update on that. And if you're really interested, you can check it out on Monday, where if it doesn't go up, Crypt will probably publish something on it. It's the problem with dates, Michael, and telling people you'll have infrastructural projects online. They can then attempt to hold you to it. Yeah, the problem with a date or a number is it, it gives a kind of a solidity to a statement, which could otherwise feel kind of empty or vacuous. But then you're stuck with a date or a number. And what happens when you come back and people say, remember you said two years ago that you're going to have done this? Well, you haven't done this. Or in much worse in this case. He said you're going to do this on Monday and you haven't done it. And it's Wednesday. And is there going to be enough electricity for me to toast my bread to have with my beans? So we will see what happens uh, with that. Just a small note before we start. Uh, on other small news, the Rittenhouse trial, which we recommend that you check out if you're you know, shy of some legal-based amusement, has uh, that is now settling. Tried to get the entire thing ruled a mistrial with prejudice. Been incredibly good entertainment, Michael. And also given an incredibly strong argument for why we should never stream court cases. You know when you have that the, the scenes where the judge is, is given out to the prosecutor for whatever various reason, and the defence attorney is having a little conniption, well, presumably, he may be having a real conniption, but he has to have a conniption anyway because it's all so terrible. The, the, this, the prosecutor is there, and you, you we're used to watching American TV you know, these hard-nosed, hard-bitten prosecutors, these people who are prosecuting murderers and rapists and drug dealers and all this kind of stuff. And very different from life in the district court in Kilchimok. But he's there, the judge, and he can't look at him, Gary. He's got the head is down and the, the, the toe, he's looking at his shoes and he's moving his finger on the desk and the judge is saying, well, why did you do that? He goes, well, I don't know. And it's so much like, you know, the bad chap in fifth year being brought up to the principal's office or even just being given out to by your father. So well, why did you do that? Why? Why? You were an experienced prosecutor. Why did you think it was acceptable for to to make reference? That is established law for the last 40 years. I don't know. I just thought, well, what did you think? I just thought it was like, I thought it was okay. You said it was okay before. I did not say, well, I thought you, it was just, it was comical. It was actually comical. It was a little bit of a, so you're saying that I can't use someone's silence to imply their own guilt. When did we decide that? This has been established law the last 40, 50 years in this country. How could you bring this in? Oh, I don't know. I just thought, well, I know. So the, the, the defence has rested. Um, there is still a little bit ongoing. That will end on Monday, I believe. And um, there have been some fantastic moments. Just wonderful moments. Personal favourite 
is was probably the prosecution when Rittenhouse took the stand asking Rittenhouse why he was that he was walking and then video shows him running towards a fire that was beside the car lot and then asking him why he was in such a hurry and there's just this moment of Rittenhouse looking confused and then going because it was on fire <laughs> isn't that what you do when it's on fire you, you speed up yeah, I mean, before that, it was all very casual, but the fire definitely added, added, you know, an element of timing to the entire thing that wasn't there before. Bit of drama. It, they have been horrendously poor at their jobs. So the, the claim that the prosecution was seeking to throw the trial so they'd have another go at it, I don't think that's out of bounds. That, there were a couple of things <laughs> they did where, like, actually, there is a possibility you think you've done so badly, this is the only way out. <laughs> no, I think at this stage they're, they're, do, do you remember the bit where they where they were talking to him about playing video games? Oh yes, yeah, and he was asking him, did he enjoy playing Call of Duty, and did Call of Duty not involve killing a great many people? And Rittenhouse again just looks confused and just goes, "Yes, but that's a video game, and video games aren't real life." And he says it in this tone of somebody actually explaining this fact. He's slightly concerned that the prosecutor doesn't get that, which is a bit of a worry. You know, do you not know that Call of Duty is a video game? And because the guy is saying, well, that the gun that he happened to bring with him to the uh, to the mostly peaceful protests was a similar kind of gun to the gun which is used in Call of Duty, which is, um, is that a single shooter game, Gary? Well, you can do both. There's a camp, a single player campaign, and there's a very large multiplayer component. It's never really my sort of game, Michael. I'm more of a sort of Kingdom Come Deliverance kind of person. I'm a Trivial Pursuit kind of a guy. Well, you know, it takes all sorts to make a world. No, it doesn't. We just got all sorts. Hmm. I just like entertainment that gatekeeps you, and then if you're not good enough, refuses to tell you the rest of the story because you don't deserve it, Michael. You're a funny little individual, aren't you, really? Underneath it all. I'm just an elitist at heart. Oh, God, at heart? I think right on the skin, Gary. <laughs> so, from that to something actually serious. So, one of the things we wanted to mention, although it's actually coming to the end now, uh, was a consultation. The consultation on Ireland's draft uh, report to the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child. The consultation ends today. Uh, by the time this podcast goes up, it's highly likely it will have closed entirely. Uh, I know a lot of groups have been very interested in it. It's been a topic of discussion in some of the activist spaces for a long time. Basically, what it is, is after we ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, sometime in early 90s, we were became required to submit regular reports to um, the UN on the steps we had taken to ensure that that convention was um, was being uh, given effect to, and then there are you have to go before them and you have oral hearings and it's it's a whole rigmarole. A consultation started as to the exact wording of the next report we will send in, and you might think, well, why is that important? And it's important because it lays out not what has happened but also what will happen, and the language in it tends to reflect a lot of. Um, should we say, the priorities or ideological positioning of the state. So there is there is an importance in it because these things get 
submitted to the UN, they get saved as official documents in Ireland, and then they become a backbone which other things can refer to and grow from. Yes, and from which ultimately legislation may spring. Of course, because you know it's what you told the UN, this is the way you phrased it, of course. Naturally, as a follow-on, other things will happen. So I suppose we should cut to the, the chase on this. There are many parts of the documents that people have drawn interest with, and I'm sure there will be a great deal of submissions on it, but it is Section 20B that people have had the most issue with and has most excised people. And 20B is allow children below the age of 16 years to achieve legal recognition of their preferred gender, including simplifying of the relevant procedures. And the basic gist of it is that this is arguing that children under 16 should be able to change their gender without requiring adult sign-off or their parents' involvement through self-declaration. Which is to say, if you say you are a particular gender, you are that gender, and this would effectively uh, increase that the, the scope of that. That's already the case for people over that age, but it looks to increase that um, or reduce that age limit there. Mm-hmm. And that's annoyed people. Now they're looking. They're looking into this already. They they've they say they've commissioned research into it, a scoping exercise. Well, the scoping exercise will lead to the research spe- specifications, and that will lead to recommendations. But the general tone of everything coming out is that the recommendations will be to broaden this and to lower the age limits, which is quite interesting because. In a lot of the rest of the world, we seem to have hit a point where negatives started becoming too well known for people to continue pushing this strongly for something. I mean, in England, for instance, you had the Kira Bell case, but you also had some of the investigations into the strength of evidence behind the claims that some of the, um, particularly the surgical interventions, were actually helpful that found those the evidence for that to be very weak. And then when you have the growing number of particularly autistic girls going forward, and then the growing amount of detransitioners and the whole sterility, and it's just a whole thing countries have decided that maybe, you know, they shouldn't do. This is, I find, a very odd thing, a very, and rather, and more than a little bit concerning. And if you look around the world, and it's not certainly, it's not maybe happening quite so much in the United States, but it's happening in England. It's happening to it's uh, Finland and Sweden are changing direction, and there is an increasing hesitancy within the world of gender identity disorder treatment to assume that this straightforward affirmative process is going to be the correct or the best one for children. And yet here, rather than to say let's take a pause and take a beat and say where we are is quite far enough and in fact in the the light of other jurisdictions may be a little bit too far we are considering allowing children below the age of 16 years to achieve legal recognition of their preferred gender including simplifying the relevant procedures we've talked before gary i think about the practical issues regarding the use of puberty blockers and then of hormone cross hormones mm. so i don't know if we want to relitigate that but i mean there are in the light the, 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 there's strong evidence that these are not drugs that can be taken on the assumption that they will not have long-term and are 
permanent consequences for people taking them, such as infertility, such as the loss of proper sexual function. One of the points that was made in the Kirabella case by the judges was, how is it possible for someone who's 13 or 14 to understand the notion of the loss, permanent loss of sexual function, when this is not, this is not something which is part of their lives that just don't, they can't, how can they conceive of something that they don't have, not have, and, and never having it? So whether or not it was a suitable thing for them to be going on. But I'm drawing a blank on the man's name at the moment, but he's a, he's a very famous researcher in this area. He's a Canadian. He developed the notion of uh, gender dysphoria, uh, and rapid onset gender dysphoria. He is perfectly happy and comfortable with the idea of helping people transition socially and if they want surgically from one gender to another. This is not his issue. He's not ideological upon it at all. But his observation has been that if you look at the studies we're talking about, first of all, it is, it is a misunderstanding of this process to consider this affirmative thing as in some sense a neutral. If a child, if we create a social context in which a child's preferred gender identity, which is not their gender identity, not their sex they were born, their, the sex that they are born with, that's their, their biological sex, but they have a, a, a dissonance from their biological sex. And a school, for example, a school community makes a choice to engage with the child and socially affirm that that is therapeutic. That's not a neutral stance. That is a positive therapeutic thing, which and I say positive in the sense of active rather than positive in the sense of good. It is a positive therapeutic act. And it is, it is fundamentally wrong to consider that to be in some sense any, or any sense a neutral thing. You are now engaged in a process which is therapeutic and changing. And his observation is simply, if nothing else, Depending on which studies, somewhere between 70, 80, 90% of children who present with rapid onset, sudden, sudden rapid onset gender dysphoria will have resolved their gender issues by the time they hit their early 20s. In other words, people who present as feeling that they actually have a different gender, by the time they hit 21, 22, will have decided that they have become comfortable with their own gender, with their biological sex. Many of them may have decided they are just gay. Now, when asked the question, he said, but you, 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 it's, not, it's not simple to say to somebody who is transgender that you're just going to have to wait. That's not a simple thing. He said, no, it's not. But, and this is the core of it, in his, his words, there is a radical asymmetry of risk in making the delay in this choice. A radical asymmetry of risk in that. If you make the choice, and we're talking 70 to 90%, say 70%, if you get it wrong, if you if you go ahead and transition, chemically transition, and then possibly biologically transition, uh, these kids, and 70% of them then detransition, for them, that has been a catastrophic intervention involving serious long-term permanent consequences. For those kids who are going to go and continue to transition, it has been a problem, it's been difficult, and but 
there's no reason why they shouldn't be psychologically and socially supported while they're doing this. But when they're going to make the decision to then physically transition hormonally and then, phys and then surgically, all that has been lost has been a certain amount of time. And when you compare the two outcomes, as I said in his words, there is a radical asymmetry with And I, I don't know what is driving this hurry. Maybe politicians are being a little bit insulated from a wider opinion or a wider disquiet about this because the kinds of people they're listening to tend to be the same respectable kinds of people who share the same respectable kind of views. And they need to know that there may be people out there, perfectly nice, decent, reasonable, compassionate people, but who have concerns. And word in their ear, I think, would not be a bad thing. I think one of the consistent issues in Ireland has not been that people are making arguments for these sort of things. It has been the lack of a counterweight from groups or individuals which are seen as respectable and knowledgeable rather than activist groups. And even in Ireland, there aren't that many activist groups against this. This is going to be pushed for by nearly all of the large sexual right charities. Um, and if you're a TD, it's entirely possible that you just don't hear a lot from other people. Or if you do, it's not in the sort of fashion which goes down well with civil servants and TDs. Yes. Which is, you know, very respectable people saying things that seem reasonable, which may be total horseshit, but at least look legitimate. And that involves research and references and nicely put together dossiers. Let no one discount the impact that a good format has as i mean a nicely formatted document has on convincing the civil service that something is correct and if you're the kind of people that historically they have had recent decent relationships with they consider you to be responsible civic actors well-intentioned people acting in good faith and you're coming along with a nice document well presented well why shouldn't they believe you ultimately you have to believe someone speaking of of debate and you know, respectable debate. I've been following uh, another bill, which is called the Criminal Justice Smuggling of Persons Bill 2021. Now, this has been going through, it's gone through the Shannon, it's gone into the Dáil. I believe it's currently, uh, it's currently progressing at quite a clip. And why I've been following it is it has a very particular provision in it, which is perhaps defensible. I mean, I can see why you would include a provision like this in a bill on human trafficking. But I thought it was worth mentioning, particularly in light of the fact that I have gone through the Dahl and Shannon discussions on this, and this provision has been mentioned, but no one has spoke against it or sought to limit it. It's basically all been about making it, uh, bring it on. So the bill is, as you may have guessed, on the subject of human trafficking. Section 9 of it. It shall be a defence in any proceedings against a person for an offence under section 6, 7 or 8 for the person being charged with the offence to prove on the balance of probabilities. Now again, that is 51%. Anything over 50% that the conduct alleged to constitute the offence, which would be human trafficking, was engaged him by him or her in order to provide in the course of his or her work on behalf of a bona fide organisation assistance to a person seeking international protection in the state or equivalent status in another state if the purpose of that organisation includes giving assistance without charge to people seeking such protections or status or 
for the purpose of providing humanitarian assistance otherwise than for the purpose of obtaining directly or indirectly a financial or material benefit. Now, what that means is it will be a defence for effectively anyone who works with an NGO to bring someone into this country. Now, I can see reasons why that would be the case, Michael, why you would put in place a human trafficking law and then immediately say NGOs don't have to abide by it. I can see legitimate reasons for that to be there. Things like uh, we saw in Europe where you had uh, some of the migrant work pulling migrants out of the sea. You don't want a situation where someone does that, brings that person to the country, and then that's a crime. Which is not to say the person should be accepted as a refugee, but you might say in that case, because there is a risk to that person's life, we just want to write it into it that it's not a crime. Problem there is that this doesn't really limit itself to that, or to fringe cases where you might say, okay, there is a, a value for that. No, it, 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 it's a bit wider than that, isn't it? Well, particularly point A is the one about the bona fide, um, uh, is the one about the, the NGOs. Point B is something anyone can fall under. So anyone can bring someone into the state in a fashion that would normally be judged to consist of human trafficking. Mm-hmm. If, on the balance of probability, you can say that it was for the purpose of providing humanitarian assistance to that person. So, providing humanitarian assistance would be a defence. Yeah, so, like, you just need a court to think, you know, maybe. We're talking about a situation where somebody is caught bringing somebody in or having brought somebody into the state without having gone through the correct channels. Now, that in itself, on the, on the, ba- on the face of it, that would be a criminal offence. And you could be... Yes. For you're trafficking people. You're bringing people into the state. However, you do, what this legislation does is it provides a defense against trafficking. If on the balance of probability you can show that you didn't do so in order to profit from them or to exploit them, but rather you did so in a good faith attempt to bring them into the country to protect them from issues in their homeland or because they had other, they had, there were other other contingencies in their life and which you felt they would be better off living in in this country and for those reasons you brought them here but not in order to either to exploit them or to profit from them i would say that this is not a small criminal matter either uh, on conviction the, there is a max uh, sentence of this of, of 10 years but Michael, here's the one I thought you'd really like. Yes. So section six or seven, which that that is a defence to are your you know your standard enough assisting unlawful entry into the state. Okay. But it also is a defence against section eight. Now this is the one I think is quite interesting. Provision of fraudulent travel or identity documents for the purpose of assisting entry into transit across or presence in state or designated state. So an NGO. Under this law, now there may be other laws that would catch you, (laughs) let's put that out there, Mm. but if you only focus on this law, an NGO could create a fake passport for someone, give it to that person to get them into the state, and that would be deemed perfectly legal. Or potentially perfectly legal. But here's the other thing, Michael. The the, the, the 9-1-B, it's a defense if you can show on the balance of probability that you brought someone in for the purpose of providing humanitarian assistance. That does not require you to be in an NGO. You don't need to be in what it calls a bona fide organization. So if you are trafficking people into the state, Michael, for your own financial benefit, how difficult do you think it would be to 
have something in place where you could have, you know, the, just the possibility that you may actually be doing that to provide humanitarian assistance to that person. And therefore, yes, you did forge a lot of travel documentation, but actually that's perfectly fine. That just seems like a provision that any sufficiently interested party could, if they wanted, use quite easily. Well, I you're getting you're getting into sort of you know, shades of grey here, aren't you? I mean, it would depend ultimately, probably, on the degree to which you are profiting from or exploiting the people. I mean, if they were doing okay out of it, you were doing okay out of it. Yeah, to be honest, Gary, I'm a little bit more concerned about the other side of it. But what you've effectively done here, or you not personally, Gary, I don't think you drafted this law, but the, what the government effectively is doing here is giving a free pass to any charity uh, or NGO organisation to smuggle people into the country without sanction. I yeah I, I can see the, like particularly the document thing. I don't think giving NGOs the ability to legally control, produce or distribute travel or identity documents is um is a good idea why should why shouldn't ngos illegally bringing people into the state be subject to sanction even if they're doing it for the best of intentions when did that okay intent can matter to a degree in law but if you've broken the law the law is there this is the law you're not even even if you're doing it for the best of reasons you've still broken the law why should they why should that matter or why should it matter to this degree this idea that NGOs should not be prosecuted for that thing, that is, you see it in other parts of Europe, it's not universal. The mere fact that something has been done before, or seems popular in parts, is going to be enough to get it into the bill anyway. I'm just surprised, because you're, you're I would have thought, actually, a lot of the time, more than me, very much a hard line, the law is the law kind of a guy. And what is this position? Well, the law... The law is the law because this is the law because they've made it the law, which is a bit of a weasel move. If they make it the law, yes, it is the law. I, I don't think it should be the law. We, I Do I think that the Vincent de Paul is going to start bringing in truckloads of people? Probably not. Am I absolutely confident that there aren't Irish groups that are perfectly willing to do this? No. Maybe they should be doing it. Maybe this is the correct humanitarian thing to do. I don't know. But if the law, if the law is, it's, okay, here's the problem, actually. I don't like laws that distinguish between one group and another. You don't think the NGO workers should be a protected class? No, I don't like protected classes generally. But no, I don't see why they should be a protected class in any way in this. And I don't like the idea that you you say that the law sometimes has to be a bit grey at the edges in the sense that sometimes it's not quite, where we, we we don't always get to know where the solid ground is, and sometimes we just have to live with that. That's the nature of living in a human world. But you're saying here, well, this is sometimes going to be a crime, and sometimes it is not going to be a crime. And it's going to depend on the good faith and good wishes of the people involved, and or their membership of certain kinds of organisations. That I don't like, definitely. No, I think there, there are two primary concerns here one is the ngo one is malicious groups so criminal groups Uh, both of them have things in here they're going to like what i thought particularly interesting was not the law itself which again i do not think part nine should be there i think that would be 
there may be a discussion there about particular fringe cases, but a blanket, no, not for certainly not for NGOs who we've seen go buck wild with this sort of thing in Europe. What I thought was was particularly interesting is I've read through all of the transcripts of the debates on this across the Dáil and the Shannon, and I have not seen anyone bring up Section Nine as a as anything more than, well, congratulations us for protecting the rights of the NGOs. Whereas I think giving an organisation the ability to produce and possess and control fraudulent government travel and identification documents might be something you want to debate. Someone might say, you know, are we sure this is the right thing to do? But no, if anything, there have been pushes to take it further from some of the more left-wing, particularly the senators. We do love an NGO. We do, I mean, particularly in Ireland. So that um, that is currently going through the doll at the minute. It's going with some speed. We'll see where it goes, and we will see what happens with it. But at uh, current count, everyone is behind it. Probably go through largely as is, bar some sort of problem developing. One of the big things in the news the last while, Michael, has been uh, talk about the retrofitting. Well, sorry, it's been in, like, the Times and the Independent and News Talk. If you're getting your news from the tabloids, I'm not sure if they've brought it up. But actually, they might, just because of, look how much this costs. Oh, my God. But what I thought was, um, it was just an interesting article that was sort of about it in the Times. And it was titled, Claire Byrne Challenges Ireland's Climate Strategy. People are being asked to pony up a lot. And the subheading is, the Orte host deftly turns a consumer item into a querying of government policy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and um, apparently the conversation highlighted Burns' penchant for taking a more granular approach to social and political topics with an attitude of no-nonsense pragmatism that seems particularly primed towards that storied land of media stereotype, Middle Ireland. <laughs> oh, she was absolutely... Uh... So Claire Byrne had some people on from Electric Iron Superhomes what Claire Byrne did to receive this write-up in the Irish Times, which at the time I saw it was the most read item in the Irish Times, but I suspect it's a bit of a slow news day, was she asked the people from Electric Ireland Superhomes about the cost. And she said the people are being asked to pay a lot. And is this really going to be worthwhile? <laughs> savagery, Gary. Absolute savagery. There was blood on the floor. That kind of inquisitorial approach is just, they're not used to it. Now, now, listen, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the you have something to do on a regular basis, you need content, so by God you'll talk about anything or write about anything. I have a lot of sympathy for that, Michael, several years into this podcast. But imagine if that's true, Michael. Imagine if that is actually the high water bar, so high that the Irish Times must recognise it for doing so much more than the rest of Irish media. Well, the pushback, Gary, that you're seeing about... We have seen quite a few people come out with a wide variety of statements in the last few weeks, touching on various aspects of the government's climate response and the economics of it and what's going to be subsidised and what's going to be invested and all the various plans they have and what they're going to achieve and what they're going to do. There have been, shall we say, blank statements of fact. This is This will happen in five years. This will happen in ten years. This will cost this, this will cost that. The level of what you might call pushback of, well, are you sure, Minister? Or what is the basis for that Minister? Or, well, no, Minister, I have some figures here, has really been very, very shallow indeed. Have you seen 
any kind of savage forensic breakdown of any of these claims that they've been making all over the gap for the last few weeks? Michael, I, th- I thought I hadn't, but then the Irish Times informed me that Claire Byrne asked a representative of Electric Homes, Super Homes, when told that you'd have to do something about the fire. What are you proposing will replace these fires? <laughs> I think we can rest We can rest safely, Michael, knowing that these people are on the job. <laughs> it's, a, it's a savaging, isn't it? An absolute savaging. That poor person, how they... When they came off air, they must have been given brandies and... Uh, and cold compresses in order to recover from that kind of savagery. I, do, I don't know. Did you see Miriam O'Callaghan talking to Minister Eamon Ryan on primetime when Minister Ryan said that the cost of an electric car will go below the cost of a fossil fuel car within two to three years? I did, and I was immediately unsure if that was a promise or a threat. <laughs> you see, that's the correct response. But that is not the response that she got. Could you say that, she, that the minister endured a great deal of pushback or detailed inquisitorial analysis of what the hell he meant? No, I think we can fairly say. But you're absolutely right, Gary. What is that? Is that a threat or is that a promise? Now, I would say that most people would assume that it was going on the basis of being a promise. Okay, let's let's just de- take this example of things that we done now if you were to if you if you were to, to to look at this promise this is being done on the basis that we're being told that by 2025 which is actually four years away more really the battery technology is going to have improved so much that the cost of the batteries is going to have declined so much that the cost of electric cars will have will come down lots and lots and lots now, Gary, there is, before we move on, I, I, I will wonder out loud at you and you can respond if you want. Do you think that we have done full scale second and third level consequence regarding, say, the cost of the materials that we're going to need for electric cars and batteries if we succeed in, or if we, in fact, if we push electric cars from being one or two percent of the world's fleet to being 50 or 60 or 70 percent of the world's fleet and what that might do to the base material costs involved michael i would be amazed if there's even a departmental analysis of what hitting our uh, goal of one million electric vehicles on the road would do to the electrical grid so you're not confident that what they'll have looked at the effect that this would have on say rare earth metals or lithium that the stability in the, the prices there might be assumed to to an excessively op- optimistic degree, we might say. But leaving that aside, the practicalities of it, within two to three years, I mean, that's, Gary, the cars that are going to be on sale in two to three years are the cars that are, that are being made now. I mean, they're not going to suddenly discover a car next year. Everything that has been that's going to be on the market in three years' time is in a factory somewhere already. This is not a, this is not some kind of brand new technology. So just to look at this now, we're talking presumably we're talking new cars here, obviously. Well, it's worth observing that in Ireland, like you have around what was it the last the figures I got for the for the last that I could get a, a straight comparison between the two. It was 2018 where there were 113,000 new private cars were licensed for the first time. 
and the number of used cars licensed was 108,000, right? 2019, it's a total of 222,000. So we're talking in and around between 45% to 55%. In a, there's a similar-ish kind of number of cars that are new and second-hand. So it's worth observing that this is not going to touch the second-hand market at all, at least for quite some time. Okay, I'm going to ask you, and you don't have to know, and you don't even have to guess because we don't feel comfortable, Gary, because I want you to feel comfortable. What would you say is the cheapest electric car available in the country today, roughly, price-wise? 20,000? Well, the cheapest I can find is coming in around 24 grand, and that is the Renault Zoe, right? Which is a hideous car. Well, a hideous car. I mean, if I had it, I'd be happy. Well, would I actually? I know I wouldn't. I, I, if, I, if I had 24 grand, I wouldn't spend it on the Renault Zoe. The, the the range of your Renault Zoe, and remember, these are the, the range I'm giving you is the range which is supplied by Renault, okay? And sometimes, Gary, sometimes when people drive cars in the real world, they find that the range or, say, the fuel efficiency isn't the same as what is written in the booklet for all sorts of reasons. Stood under ideal conditions. Yeah, indeed. In fact, it says here, when you're looking at the range, which is around 250 miles or 377 kilometres, that is 377 kilometres in uh, reason in mild weather conditions. True driving range depends on speed, driving style, topography and weather conditions. Now, I wouldn't have said 250 miles as is a brilliant range. If I'm not if I'm not mistaken, the, the Renault Zoe is I think the best selling electric car in Europe. So it's probably decent. Well two hundred and fifty miles, I'm talking as as a range there are gonna be a lot of people for whom two hundred and fifty miles is not really gonna cut it. When the charging from zero to hundred a Renault Zoe on your seven KW wall box at home is nine hours and 25 minutes listen i'm not i'm not going to get into criticism or whether or not i'm just saying at the bottom end of the market you can get a car for 24 grand right but speaking of no bells and whistles because remember what we're saying here the minister is saying is that the cost of electric cars is going to be less than the cost of the fossil fuel cars basic model you're getting your 250 250 mile range and a nine and a half hour top-up time is there in a Zoe. How much would you say, no, this is the cheapest I found, but can, what would you have a, have a guess, a guess a Rooney at the cheapest, shall we say, traditional car? Oh, including like done deal? No, no, new, new car. Oh, 10,000? Not bad. Uh, the cheapest I could find is a Dacia Sandero, which you'd get for 11,600. You'd nearly think I knew anything about cars. More than twice the cost. It's that would be getting up to twenty three. It's slightly more. We we'll call it yeah. For the sake of handiness and being generous, it's half price. A Dacia Sandero, which is it's part of it. It will be related to that Renault Peugeot group. I think they made in Romania. But you get central locking, DAB radio, Bluetooth, electric front windows, and uh, it's a five seat, five door car for eleven thousand six hundred. Now. Thing is, Gary, that car will get you 
all the way to the next petrol station, which you can fill up at, and then keep going and going and going and going. Which, is for people who lives in the country, is kind of an important thing. So you, you mean I don't have to break my day up into nine and a half hour charging times? <laughs> Something like that. Now, that's 11 grand. That's the, that's the price. And in two to three years, electric cars are going to be cheaper. So the cheapest, which is the Zoe, which is 24,000, here, cheapest station is 11,600. Now, just for the sake of our argument, Gary, let's, let's recognise the fact that around half of the cars that are bought every year by people in this country are second-hand cars. And I make the observation that it's very hard to know what the average price is of a second-hand car because of the way we, we, we buy them and because they, you, know, you get second-hand people selling second-hand Mercedes 500s that are for six months old and you get people who are selling that's and Sunnies from 1977. Best I could come up with was that the average price, rough average price of the top quarter, the top 25% of sec- most expensive second-hand cars is around €13,000, okay? Once you get into the bottom quarter, you're talking a couple of grand and less. Now, when you look at the fact that the average lifespan of a car battery, of the kind of car batteries we look at up to, is around 10 years, if you look at the age of the second-hand cars that you can buy on Dundeal, which are over 10 years old, and you're still getting, you're still being asked to shell out eight and nine grand for them, seven, eight, nine grand. All of this picture, Gary, I'm drawing this rather maybe confused picture to make the point or the observation that I'm not sure if the minister's telling the whole truth. Do you remember, I think it was, could have been a couple of years ago at this point, I can't remember if it was Department of Finance or Department of Transport, but they wrote a report looking at the uptake of electric cars. Yes. And from what I remember, there was some crazy nonsense in the report. But um, the part I remember was they had this moment where they started talking about the high cost of electric cars maybe stopping people from uh, purchasing them. And it was said in this sort of tone of, wow. who could have known? Can you imagine? Who, yes. Who could have said such a thing? And we should remember by the way, as we're talking about this, all of the prices that we're giving for electric cars are prices after the grant. So if it is the case, and there are people in the Department of Finance who are very keen that it should be the case that in the near future, the grants given to electric cars will disappear, well, that would imply that the price is going to go up rather than down, unless the down price is the, the, the new technology is really, really, really significant. So do you think it was a promise or a threat then from Ron? Joe, I'm going to go with threat because I, other the other reason to go with threat is because it's the only thing that makes sense. Well, the government had promised to bring up the price of fuel. They're talking about banning fossil fuel powered cars by what date is that? I think 2030 or 2035. Yeah, I mean, even the Irish Times got love it as an article that Ireland has a target of one million electric vehicles by 2030, but the sums don't add up yet. I mean, there's a wonderful line. Talk about you're taking a number. Say, like, we want a million cars by 2030, which is only nine years. And you have the line where, you know, the pace of adoption of electric cars is increasing with over 2,800 electric cars registered so far in 2021 alone. Yeah, I've seen a couple of articles like that. Or electric cars make up 20% of all cars sold in that quarter. Like, what, what was the number? And they're like, that's not important. You're just getting into picky, picky details here. No, I think it makes perfect sense. If you look at the numbers, that what he's actually saying is, by God, we are going to make it so painful for you to drive your diesel car in the next two or three years that you're just going to not want to drive it. We're going to put the tax up. We're going to put the, we're going to put in a post factum 
um, externality tax on it. We're going to make every. We're just going to make it horrible for you. And it, even even if it's not actually the same price or more expensive than an electric car, it'll feel like it is because we're going to go. We're going to beat you with socks full of wet sand. So I think that's the basic approach the government is going to take. It will. The curious thing for me over the next couple of years is going to be how willing the Irish population is to be beaten over the head with socks full of wet sand. If you were coming from a rate of zero and you wanted to get a million cars by 2030, so you had nine years, you would need to sell every month over 9,000 electric cars. Oh, it's going to go up. It's going to go up. It's going to go up. It really will. Now, I, I'm, I'm not being smart here. Don't attempting comedy i think it will go up because i i really do believe that when they're if if there isn't significant political pushback on this and i don't think that's discounted i don't think we'll see but if they don't get significant political pushback on it if there isn't a a real cost on this one for them politically i think they'll just keep ladling and ladling and lading up the cost of the alternatives It'll be simple as that. They will drive people off the roads in significant numbers, but they will make. But they're Gary, you have you, Jesus, you know better than the people. What does the Irish population look like outside? We have a weird population. We have had a weird population for a very long time. We have, other than Greece, we have it, it's we have a, a population which is the most disproportionately balanced towards the capital in Dublin. Athens is the only, has, is more, has a larger or more disproportionate population. But other than that, we're, we're second. And after that, we have an incredibly diffuse, dispersed population. We have very few large towns. We have effectively only one city, whatever Cork likes to be. Cork is a large town, it's in, in, in an international sense. We have very few large towns or cities outside of Dublin. Our population is spread like butter across a slice of bread and that means that the, to effectively put in any kind of effect uh, proper public transport would be incredibly expensive and difficult we are going to have a population which is more more than usually dependent on owning some kind of car or vehicle i mean we may maybe we'll see people going back on mopeds or three wheelers or something i mean there may be odd weird solutions that which will come out of this i don't know but people will have to have cars and they will they, and the only kind of car they will be able to afford will be some kind of electric car to run because even to they will have to borrow money they'll have to go into debt to get them but it won't be possible to run day to day for a lot of people and a car a diesel or a petrol car it used to say a million electric cars now it says a million electric vehicles so i have a feeling they'll try and fold a lot of you know state and semi-state fleets under that yes. to try and get as much numbers as they can. But I've, I've been saying for a long time that these numbers don't make sense. But I don't think I've ever actually explained the the numbers and why they don't make sense. And we kind of touched on it there, Michael, so I might just very quickly run through it just to give people an idea of this. So when you, when you look at the numbers, we have to hit over 9,000 a month in order to basically hit the government's targets. And we would have had to hit that every month from the start of 2021 straight through the end of uh, uh, 2030. But when you look at it, that's not what you actually find. 
So the Irish Times in October said there'd been about just shy of 8,000 new electric vehicles registered up to October. So that'll bring them to about nine, somewhere in the region of nine, around 10,000 a year. We are currently doing in a year what we need to do in a month. We need to see a 1200% increase in what we are buying in order to hit those targets. And we need to see that increase consistently. And that to me does not seem terribly likely. That is how far they are off. Like you are talking astronomical differentials. So can they do it? Maybe if they make things painful enough. But I have a feeling, Michael, they just pluck that number. Like it's too neat as well. A million by a date that ends in 10. It's just, it's neat. It wasn't worked out. It's just an aspiration. No, it's, it, it has all of the hallmarks of a figure that was picked because it's a nice figure. It's a nice number. It has a certain symbolic value. I have heard the government say, well, it's not a million. It's actually something like 940 or 50,000. That's just a, this number sounds too neat. Give them a less neat number. It sounds real. Or I, I, I agree with you on for two reasons as regards the practicality or the possibility of it. First of all, my suspicion is, strong suspicion is, that if you're going to see the kind of growth in the Irish, mar- the Irish market for cars, electric cars, replicated across the Western world, we would simply not be in a position to meet the needs of the manufacturers to produce those cars. I'm just sceptical about the capacity for a car manufacturing of this kind to be to to be to be available to us in the in the next nine years. Secondly, what are we going to run these cars on? Where have we seen a plan of any shape or form for the expansion in the capacity to generate electricity in Ireland to meet the needs of a million electrical vehicles? On top of the fact that our population is going to grow by a million in the next, within the, certainly by the time we hit 2030. And we're going to be continually engaged in expanding an economy, which is going to be based on very, very high consumption of electricity. The projected growth for the economy in Ireland this year is 14%. And we are looking at high, high percent, which is great. Hooray, hooray. I mean, I'm not anything but very happy that we're looking at the possibility we may actually be able to grow our way out of trouble, even though we know that people in the green movement are very suspicious about the notion of growth. And that's not me being controversial, Gary. That's a, that's a simple and increasingly stated fact by people in the green movement. Growth is, we used to talk about sustainable growth. Have you noticed this change, Gary? It used to be sustainable growth. Now it's increasing degrowth. Degrowth is what we, we need to be aiming for rather than sustainable growth. I don't see anything which suggests that we, we, we would have the capacity in, in the next nine years to feed these cars and the economy that we will have in 2030. The, the, the practical issues. And the practical issues around if we, if we were to actually do this to the people of Ireland. The fact that you would have not tens of thousands, but I suspect hundreds of thousands of people put off the road and out excluded from the economy and from social life effectively because they would be told no you are no longer the kinds of people that will be driving cars those days are over 
Anyway, we will be back on Sunday. Until then, get out your bike. All the best.